I'm Liz Logan, and you're listening to Collecting Culture, a podcast about passionate collectors and the objects they love. When I was getting ready to start this podcast, I made a list of collectors who I wanted to interview, and quote collector Bill Volkening was at the top of my list. That's because I'm personally fascinated by quilts, and Bill shares my obsession with this historic, underappreciated art form. Over the past 15 years or so, he's amassed a collection of more than 400 quilts, And what I love about Bill is that, unlike some collectors, he's not a snob. He doesn't just limit his collecting to only the very expensive antique masterpieces. He's able to find beauty in quilts that you might find at a garage sale for 20 bucks, like psychedelic quilts from the 70s that were made with polyester, or scrappy quilts made with inexpensive Hawaiian fabrics. When people hear that Bill collects polyester quilts, that sounds kind of gross. People are kind of skeptical. But actually, the quilts are really, really cool. For a while now, most of the saved items that I have on Facebook have been photos of quilts that Bill posted either on his personal profile or on his public page, which is the Vulcaning Collection. These quilts always brighten up my day because they have intense colors or wild or somehow whimsical patterns. They are fun and they are funky. But just because Bill has a reverent taste when it comes to quilts, that doesn't mean he's not a serious collector. He knows a ton about quilt history and he's written two books about quilts, New York Beauty and Modern Roots. Parts of his collection have been exhibited at museums around the country. His real passion is sharing his collection. Bill and I talk about some particular aspects of quilts, so for listeners who aren't super familiar with how quilts are made, here's a little bit of basic terminology. Quilts have three parts, a top, a back, and in the middle there's batting, which is just fiber wadding. The fiber wadding is what gives the quilt its thickness and what makes it feel like a cozy blanket. Quilt tops are typically pieced, and piecing means exactly what it sounds like. There are many pieces of fabric that are sewn together. The back of a quilt is typically not pieced, although it can have some piecing on it. And then when we say quilting or quilting stitches, those are the stitches that go through all three layers of the quilt, and they hold those layers together. The quilting creates texture, And these stitches also add a beautiful decorative element on top of the piecing. So that's what makes a quilt. Now let's hear from Belle. Tell me about the first quilt you ever bought and how you discovered it and what moved you about it. Well, that's quite a story. I was dating a young lady in New York. She was there on a Fulbright um, scholarship or something like that. Yeah, it was a Fulbright studying at FIT and uh, brought me to a private showing of quilts at a New York brownstone apartment uptown. We hopped in a cab and, and went up and it turned out to be Shelley Ziegert from Kentucky, who is a renowned quilt aficionado. 
And uh, today she's probably best known as the executive producer of Why Quilts Matter, History, Art, and Politics, the documentary series that appeared on PBS stations around the country. And uh, at that point, this is 1989, I was pretty young in grad school and didn't have a lot of money. But the quilt was magnificent. It was the best thing she had. And she had things all over the apartment, just draped all over the furniture. Uh, my girlfriend, Uli, uh, Ulrika, she went home with a blue and white, indigo and white drunkard's path. And we thought that was pretty funny that there was a quilt called the Drunkard's Path because we used to go down to the corner Irish pub, you know, bar um, and put back a couple drinks and have, you know, play darts and things like that. So Drunkard's Path was pretty funny and we laughed about that. The one I found was uh, a pattern that Shelley called New York Beauty. And it is, uh, I still have it, it is a red, white, and green quilt with pops of cheddar made around the 1850 period. And it's a magnificent masterpiece quilt. That quilt compared to the other quilts, was it like brighter or? It was clearly the best one there in terms of how it was made, the amount of quilting on it. Um, it was very densely quilted. There were a lot of pieces, and they were small triangular pieces. If you're familiar with the New York Beauty design, it involves these curved wedges and spiky points that are on the curved seam. And it's a complex design. Um, there was something about it that struck me. At the time, I thought it was maybe tribal or something like that, but now I really think of it more in terms of Victorian architectural detail in its complexity. There are sunburst and starburst designs as part of the motif. And uh, for some reason, I, th I had in my mind that red, white, and green uh, meant it was an old quilt, that, that old quilts were, you know, really old quilts were red, white, and green. Uh, it's the oldest New York beauty in my collection. I learned much, much later that the name New York beauty came about in the 1930s. So in the 1850s, when that quilt was made, we're not sure what they would have called it, but I call it a beautiful masterpiece quilt. And I was compelled by the whole thing and had to have it. Do you know who the maker was and, and were they New York based? I do not, but I can say that they were most likely not New York-based, and the pattern did not uh, first appear in New York. In fact, the New York State Documentation Project called their book and their project New York Beauty, anticipating that they would discover the roots of the New York Beauty there in New York. But in fact, uh, it was most often discovered, uh, the earliest examples, in the South, places like Tennessee and Kentucky. And there was a concentration in those states. So it was a Southern design at first. It got that name in the 1930s. How did the name come about then? There is a company called Mountain Mist. And Mountain Mist was manufacturing batting for quilts. And they sold it in rolls. And wrapped around the rolls were paper patterns. And the paper patterns were kind of like a premium that were extra incentive to buy the batting. New York Beauty, I believe, was Pattern X, and it was uh, designed by uh, a designer that was employed by the company, a female who worked with a, a man. I can't remember their names right off the top of my head, but there was wonderful research about it in uh, the American Quilt Study Group journal uh, a couple years ago, the Uncoverings Journal. 
and it was uh, a paper done by Mary Kay Waldvogel on the topic of these letters that had been found, correspondence between the woman who was the designer and the man who was the uh, representative from the company, and how they how they interacted and worked together to create these quilt designs. That's really all we know about the New York Beauty. There were a lot of designs that were inspired by traditional quilts, and they were given names. I think at the time, New York was the largest city, one of the largest and most populated cities in the world, and still is, and a, a center of culture and fashion, and, and had certain associations. Uh, but also around that time, the Chrysler Building went up, and it had very similar motifs with the points and curves on the, the crown. Um, if you look at the Chrysler building and New York beauty next to each other, you'll see similarities. So I think that could be part of the connection. There's also people who say things like the statue of Liberty crown is reminiscent of the design motif in New York beauty. It's a, it's a little bit of a controversial subject with some, the naming of the quilt, because we really know it as New York beauty and that's going from today backwards. Uh, we've kind of applied that name to this motif, but there are a few Southern quilt historians who are not happy with the use of that term. Um, it's a Yankee name to describe a very Southern quilt. So there's, you know, there's some conflicted feelings about it. <laughs> Uh, I I accepted the nomenclature New York Beauty because that is what people use today, and my approach was really to go and go about explaining how that came to be and where New York Beauty the name came from. So I agree with them that it's not the original name, but I don't agree that it's not what we call them. It it, it really is what we call these quilts. So let's go back. You said you were collecting for twenty years and people didn't know about it. How did it go from the first quilt that you got, which was a New York Beauty in 89, I think you said, um, how did how did it snowball from there? What made you want to, what fascinated you about quilts and what made you want to get more of them? Well, that's kind of a funny story because the, the first quilt I bought, I really thought it was a one-shot deal. I thought, okay, you know, I've got my one antique quilt and now I can say I have that and it the idea, I think, was that uh, no home was really complete without a great old quilt in it. And I guess I grew up thinking that somehow. I don't know that, you know, if you if you really have a home, then you really have a great old quilt in it. <laughs> I don't know where I got this idea because we really didn't have a lot of quilts when I was growing up. But we did have a couple of old quilts that my mom, I guess, found in an antique shop somewhere. And whenever we were sick, we would get to curl up under the quilts. But that was the only time. So uh, I guess I understood them as comforting objects. It didn't get going for a few years uh, because I really thought, like I said, it was a one-shot deal. Uh, but then I realized, and my, the idea was to hang it on the wall. So I hung it on the wall, and then I started to think about it and think, oh, gee, I really don't know if this should be on the wall. Um, it wasn't a cheap thing or anything like that. It was a lot more money than I should have been spending at that point in my life, but I did it anyway. Uh, so the idea was to get another quilt. So I went looking for another quilt that was red, white, and green so that I could swap them out during the year and have one hanging part of the year and the other hanging the other part of the year. So that was going to be it, just two quilts. Found the second one in Maine at an antique shop in Rangeley near Saddleback Mountain called Blueberry Hill Antiques. And it's actually in my Modern Roots book, my second book. 
Uh, it's a star quilt with uh, two points in each corner. And it's kind of red, white, and green. It's a, it's a very interesting quilt in terms of its graphics, but it's definitely not the same as the first one. And I wasn't 100% satisfied that I had done a good, you know, a substitution for this other quilt during the rest of the year. During those years, I was moving around a lot and my decor changed quite a bit. And, you know, I was moving once a year at, at a certain point. And with all the changes in where I was living, I had new wall spaces, different colors, different furniture, and started using quilts to decorate the walls at that point. Uh, it really, really got started around 2000, 2001, after I'd moved into my first house, which I'm still in. And at that point, I discovered eBay. I was going to say, you buy a lot of quilts online. And if you don't mind me asking, like, what, what? How much are you spending on these? What's or what's the range in price? These days, not as much because I've finished. I'm sort of finished shopping for mostly the high end quilts that I was buying to put together in the New York Beauty book and and um, some of the other quilts that I bought over the years. I'm not as focused on. I would still look at anything that would be for 1830 at this point because I'm really intrigued by uh, what happened when. Um, before America started import, uh, make, producing fabrics rather than importing them. I was really intrigued by that. And, you know, the transition was happening around 1840. So I look at 1830 and earlier, and, and those are hard to find. So you can't just go around collecting those every day. During the last five years, I've been very much focused on the 1970s and lately the Hawaiian scrap quilts and since nobody's really collecting those at this point, I've been able to get a lot of them for really not a lot of money. And I'm talking about, you know, from for free to, you know, the really expensive ones that might be $250 at the very most. And, you know, five years ago, $250 would have been totally outrageous for one of those quilts. But they've started to climb a little bit eBay, does that take away some of like the thrill of the hunt of like finding something in the back of an antique store or is it still thrilling? <laughs> Not at all. No, it's a different thrill because you're watching the timer and I'm kind of a sniper when it comes to something I want. I will go in and I will place my bid within the last 10 seconds and it will be one of those outrageously high bids knowing that you know it'll just go up incrementally based on what uh, everybody else has bid so if someone else bid 50 bucks and i bid 385 dollars and 26 cents it might come in at 51 dollars because it just bumps it up one dollar or whatever it is that's called sniping and i do that and there is a definite adrenaline rush when you do that so eBay, but you still shop at antique stores. Do you go to like estate sales, garage sales, all kinds of things? Usually not. In this area, I have such a network going that people call me and or they contact me, they email me. And most of the time, I, I'm kind of sad to admit, most of the time they're, they do not have what I'm looking for. Uh, but sometimes they do. I look at everything and I listen to every, everyone who, who uh, approaches me with quilts. Uh, I sometimes go shopping in the area, but there's not a whole lot to be found. Uh, I've found a couple really amazing things, though, so that's why I'm always looking. And your collection is more than 300 quilts at this point, right? It's, I, oh, I need to update my website. It's over 400. Oh, my goodness. 
So you talked a little bit about how in the past five years you've been focusing more on 70s, um, a lot of polyester quilts and Hawaiian because not other people aren't collecting those. Um, So then is the rest of your collection these like 19th century, really incredible historic quilts or how does it break down? Hmm. That's a, that's a good question. I have, I haven't cataloged the whole collection yet. I do have them in my iPhoto, so I, I have them going chronologically. And I would say that my collection is kind of a timeline, but it's weak in certain areas such as Victorian. I've avoided Victorian quilts a lot because of the condition of the silks. They often get to be deteriorated and, uh, it becomes a project, I think. Although I have to say I'm much, much more interested in crazy quilts now than I used to be because I see a connection between crazy quilts, an earlier period, and cubism, which came later. The kind of design that you see in crazy quilts almost predicts cubism, and it definitely predates cubism. So I'm interested in in how things that we see in the world of art surface earlier in quilts. If you think about pop art and the repeat designs that we see in Andy Warhol's works, well, we see repeat designs in quilts of sort of pop art type objects or maybe not pop art, but recognizable motifs and representational motifs in a repeat grid. We see that in the late 19th century, even the middle 19th century in quilts. I love that you give so much credit to quilters. I feel like the rest of the world does not do that. You clearly love these people. Well, I learned that from the very beginning when I started talking to Shelley Ziegert about quilts and she presented them uh, as this whole um, world of women's creative expression that has been an unbroken chain since the beginning of colonization of the United States Um, and I related to that because I was studying photography at the time and photography had its own struggle for acceptance in the world of art. So we talked about where you buy the quilts and obviously we, we talked about how you're trying to represent these different time periods and and make sure you have this timeline in your collection, but what else do you look for? Like at what moment are you like, I have to have that quilt? There are several different attributes that I look for. And if they're all together in combination, then it's a, you know, click me, buy it now, or, you know, grab me and run out of the shop sort of thing. Pay first, of course. Uh, One is the visual appeal. And it relates to whether the quilt will be photogenic, because my primary method of sharing them at this point is through visual media Uh, print media, online, so forth and so on. So the photographs are really, you know, it's important that the quilt be photogenic for me. Uh, I I like quilts that have information, but it's rare to find them, especially the old ones. The information didn't get passed along with the quilts. Uh, That's why I've had to speak about quilts in different terms in the New York Beauty book, for example. And uh, I look for good condition. If the condition's not good and it's still something rare and unusual, I will look beyond the condition and buy it anyway. If 
you look at my New York Beauty book, there's one quilt that has two large chunks that were are about a foot square cut out of it very crudely. And it didn't matter to me because New York beauties were so uncommon that I was buying every single thing I could just to put it together in a timeline and see what it said. So sometimes I'll look beyond condition. I really am looking for things that are visually exciting because I think quilts in general are visually exciting. And that's something about quilts that I love sharing with the rest of the world, especially the mainstream that's not inside the quilting bubble. Eventually, you had collected enough New York beauty quilts that you ended up writing this really hefty coffee table book that is beautiful called New York Beauty. How did you approach writing your first book about quilts? There's a couple things about it that are different from other quilt books. And this is something that I wanted to bring to the table uh, with my own books. And that's photography and the detail, the level of detail in the physical description, both with the photography and with the writing. I talked about things like the number of pieces in the quilt and the number of quilting stitches. Uh, Even though I didn't sit there counting all day, I estimated. I would take sections and estimate based on the work that was there and the work that was in the whole quilt. And I could say, well, this quilt has 3,500 pieces and 250,000 quilting stitches. And then the detail in the photos reflected that, including the full full view photos, uh, sometimes Well, normally you can't see any surface detail at all when you look at quilt photos, even in the best books, because they they shoot them, light them from the front, mostly with strobe, and it flattens out all of the the surface detail. Uh, So this is something different I did in my book. I used natural lighting, and you can see a lot of surface detail in the quilting. I love that because it's obviously such an homage to these makers and all the incredible work that went into it to know how many pieces and how many stitches. It was, it was also a decision for me because of this feedback I was getting from this small group of, you know, loud people that were trying to give me a hard time about the name. I wanted the quilts to tell their story. So I did an intense physical description of the quilts based on what the quilts had and what they said and the, 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 the actual attributes of the quilt. I wasn't making up stories of, you know, Southern romanticism and, you know, the, what the name meant and, and all of that kind of, and, or guessing at what people could have called them. That's what we say about quilts. That's not what the quilts say about themselves. So this book is a little different because it really focuses on what the quilts say. And it really tries to cast away some of the other stuff that we might say that may or may not be true. In the second half of our conversation, Bill and I talked about his love of groovy 70s quilts and why that decade was an important period for quilt making. So let's talk then specifically about your Hawaiian quilts and your 70s polyester quilts. Uh, You mentioned that you did an exhibit of Hawaiian quilts recently. Tell me about that. And, And also we should say that you really only started sharing these quilts with the outside world in like 2009. How did that happen? Oh, it was uh, just when I around the time I retired. I was working in editorial with a swimming magazine before that and for a number of years. And uh, I was no longer doing it and needed a hobby for my retirement. And I thought, oh, what, maybe I'll do something with these quilts. 
and that's kind of where I went with it. The polyester and the Hawaiian quilts came kind of in that order. Actually, the polyester came sort of first, although ironically, the very first 1970s quilt I found turned out to be one of these Hawaiian scrap quilts. So they're a little bit intertangled. Um, I bought that quilt and I didn't understand why. And, you know, this is one that we'll have to give you a picture of. It's a crazy block quilt with lots of muumuu fabrics and aloha shirt fabrics in it. It's very bright and colorful. It has hot pinks and all kinds of things. And at that point, I wasn't looking at anything that was less than 100 years old. I was a real snob about what I was collecting because I wanted to collect antique quilts, not new ones. Uh, but there was something very uh, intriguing about this this piece. So I bought it and I realized... Partly it was because it was made in the 1970s and it had these fabrics that I recognized growing up um, on the Brady Bunch and at the swimming pool and just, you know, bright colored 70s fabrics. It reminded me of my childhood in a quilt, even though I never had quilts in my childhood. So I collected 1970s quilts starting from there. At first I was very drawn in by the color and then I realized that the polyester was something different. Then so there that was first, feet. That first '70s quilt had poly in it. It did. It had polyester, and it turned out that it had muumuu fabrics and aloha shirts, and it was constructed in the way of the Hawaiian scrap quilts, which I sort of put together later. It came from a dealer that was here in Oregon, who maybe found it in California, but it's typical the Hawaiian scrap quilts. And I just got back from Hawaii, so you know I know what I'm looking at with those for sure. Now I, you know, I went to the vintage shops and found a lot of those same types of objects. Uh, but the polyester ones really related to the period around the bicentennial when a lot of people in America were learning how to quilt for the first time. And quilting had kind of missed a generation almost. There were still people maintaining the tradition, sure, but it wasn't as wildly popular as it had been in the 1930s and the industry had really lagged. Um, the whole time I've been collecting quilts and learning about them, I've heard about the great quilt revival of the late 1970s and how it revolved around the bicentennial. But there wasn't really a good resource or a lot of information about what those quilts were. And where, where were those quilts? They actually haven't started to surface until re really recently. And as soon as they started popping up and I put two and two together realizing that these were the quilts of the revival. This is, this is the stuff that people have been talking about and we need to take a look at it now. I started collecting them like crazy and they were $10 a piece, $20 a piece. I was getting these phenomenal quilts and there were people along the way, the same people who were bugging me about the New York beauties who thought it was very gauche that I could collect something so, you know, low as a polyester quilt uh, and, and call that fabulous but I think there's something really great about them. And so in the last five or six years, uh, maybe even longer now, gosh, time has flown by. I've collected at least 150 of them and had an absolute field day in the market because nobody else was really, there were a couple other collectors. Victoria Findlay Wolf collects them. Um, Roderick Kirikoff has collected them. And there's a few others out there. Marjorie Childress is one who will pick up polyester. Um, she's looking at a lot of improvisational quilts. Uh, so there are, there are other bidders, but for the most part, I've been able to pretty much have my way with that. 
the Hawaiian quilts came out of that because there was this realization at a certain point. It was right around QuiltCon in Austin, the last one in Austin. I'd found another quilt very much like the one I had on eBay, and there was this whole story with it about how the women in Hawaii, they call them tutus, and that's a word for auntie or uh, grandmother, would sit around and make these uh, quilts out of Hawaiian scraps. So that intrigued me, and I pursued it, and I found out that this really was a thing, and this really was an undiscovered, undocumented tradition, at least to Haole or mainlanders. And so I started trying to collect them. They're hard to come by. Uh, but over the last couple of years, I think I have maybe 50 pieces in the group, maybe maybe not so much, maybe 40. Uh, it almost doubled when I went to Oahu this last week. And tell me about the exhibition then, because there's a difference between the traditional what we traditionally think of as Hawaiian quilts and the scrap quilts that you're talking about. I'm glad you asked because the idea of the Hawaiian quilt is that it is a very austere, elegant, and uh, kind of flamboyant, uh, large medallion type design that's uh, paper cut snowflake, but botanical. And they're usually two colors. They're usually echo quilted and they have a very distinct kind of look about them. Along with that genre, we, we find flag quilts, which were sort of part of the movement and constructed in similar ways. They involve some piecework as well, uh, but they were basically very similar types of construction and graphic, very graphic. So that's what we recognize. If you ever go to Hawaii and you stroll by a gift shop that's selling quilted items. These are the quilts that, that we know of as Hawaiian. It's kind of like the same idea that African-American quilts look like G's Bend quilts. Well, we know that that's only a, a slice of the whole, you know, only, only part of the whole picture. And in Hawaii, there were these scrap quilts that were made starting probably in the 40s, but really a concentration of them in the 1970s. And uh, there were all, also myths that went along with that during the time of researching. Uh, I was doing my early research led me to uh, a blog where somebody had found one of these pieces at a vintage flea market, and they got very upset because they saw fabrics from shirts that were worth hundreds and hundreds of dollars in the collector's market, and they didn't understand that the quilts probably were not made from shirts that were cut up. They were most likely made from the garment cutaways that were available from the fabric company. You know, companies producing the garments had piles of scraps, and that's what were made into these quilts. They, they were very unlikely to cut up a $400 shirt and put it in a quilt, especially if it was still useful. So then tell me about the exhibit of the Hawaiian scrap quilts. It was at Latimer Quilt and Textile Center in Tillamook, Oregon. I've had a few exhibitions of quilts there. It's a very small ven venue on the Oregon coast. And it's it's kind of a funny town because that's where the Tillamook Creamery is. And I think there are 10 times as many cows in the town as people. So it's kind of a huge dairy farm by the sea. And they have this little schoolhouse that has a wonderful little textile center. And I've been involved with them for a few years. I'm actually a lifetime member and on their advisory board. Uh, but they asked me to do exhibitions every once in a while. And last year, 
I did uh, an exhibition on the Hawaiian scrap quilts to introduce the whole subject. I'd been keeping it sort of under wraps for a while because it was it's really wonderful to be able to discover this type of tradition and then share it. Uh, but there are other people who want to get their hooks in, in it along the way. So I was really a little bit more territorial with this idea than I have ever been with any subject in the past. Uh, because I wanted to be the one, I guess, to show that, that this was something that was had gone on. Uh, so the exhibition was the launching of that. And there were articles that came out in Generation Q magazine right around that time. Um, the Blanket Statements, um, uh, which is the newsletter of the American Quilt Study Group. And later in the year, Quilter's Newsletter ran an article. Coming up at the end of May, you have an exhibition opening at the International Quilt Study Center in Lincoln, Nebraska. Tell me a bit about what's going to be on view there. Yeah, these will be 1970s polyester double knit quilts. And, you know, these these quilts are kind of interesting. I think I started saying that I was visually drawn to them at first, and then I got more drawn into the whole story of when they were made and what they represented as a group. But the visual... We, we shouldn't necessarily look past the, the visual aspects of these quilts. One thing that is really intriguing about them is that a lot of antique quilts end up faded because they're made of cotton and they're washed and they're left in the sun or whatever. We don't always see the original colors. And if you look at the New York Beauty book, you'll see a lot of quilts that have tan fabric. We, you know, we're not sure exactly what color that could have been, but it wasn't originally tan in a lot of cases, but with the double knit polyester quilts of the 1970s, they are exactly the same colors now as they were when they were made. Those fabrics did not fade at all. And when you say polyester double knit, what does that mean? Double knit is just a, a way of uh, weaving it and it became very popular in garments. It's a thick fabric. It's usually, you know, thick kind of, um, like pantsuit fabric from the 70s or leisure suit fabric. That's really what we would consider double knit. And it was interesting because it was plastic, like I said, and there were different creative possibilities with, with double knit polyester. I've seen all kinds of prints and embossed textured fabrics and weaves, different things, uh, elements like metallic elements. Uh, I've seen... Um, Oh, I don't know, like bandana fabric printed on, you know, why do you, why would, why would anybody need polyester double knit bandana fabric? But it was possible. They did it. What is your mission now with your collection and will you give it away or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mission is to reach the mainstream. I want people outside of our community to understand the importance of quilts, the importance of quilts in America the importance of quilts as these objects of women's creative expression as, as they represent for many, many, you know, centuries now. And I want to have fun doing it. To learn more about Bill's collection, visit billvolkening.com. That's V-O-L-C-K-E-N-I-N-G. Or you can visit his blog, which is willywonkyquilts.blogspot.com. That's spelled W-I-L-L-Y-W-O-N-K-Y. 
The music and editing for this podcast was provided by my co-producer, my brother, Andrew Logan. More of his work can be found at logansound.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, we'd love it if you'd subscribe, rate us in your podcast app of choice, and tell your friends. For more photos and details from this and our other episodes, visit collectingculturepodcast.com. Or show us your collection by tagging Collecting Culture Podcast on Instagram. We'll be back next month with another collector.